0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, com, and on the NSN app available at the iTunes or Android store. We are proud to be sponsored by Beckerman PR, Beckerman Public Affairs, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story with Beckerman. See more at beckermanpr.com. And it's been a tumultuous couple weeks out there in the political world, all kinds of machinations with regard to 2016 going on. We have international issues galore with regard to the Middle East, with regard to Ukraine and Russia, with regard to the controversial, and it it shouldn't be controversial, but we'll talk about it later about why it's controversial, the controversial speech before the joint session of Congress coming up in the first week in March by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, and we're going to go very in-depth on that later on in the show. But it also certainly needs to be mentioned the regime change that has happened in Albany, a a once-in-a-generational type of regime change, in the unseating of a sitting speaker of the Assembly, the first... And the ascension of a new speaker, the first non-Jewish speaker, and I think for listeners of this show, it's noteworthy, the first non-Jewish speaker in 40 years since 1975, elected to the speakership. And witnessing it all in a first-hand account, we have uh, a freshman, freshman assemblyman, Todd Kaminsky, represents the 20th Assembly District, uh, my hometown, the five towns, Long Beach, Oceanside, Island Park, and the environs. And he has had a very, I'd say, tumultuous and exciting first month in Albany. Todd Kaminsky, welcome back to SPIN Class.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me again, Michael.
0: So first of all, I understand that your wife is due imminently. This is your first baby. So let's just get that out of the way and uh, wish you all the best as that happens. Hopefully it's not going to happen while we're on the phone.
1: Uh, Yes, I've asked my wife if she could just wait. During the interview, um, and she likes you and knows you, so she agreed. No, no labor during the during this interview.
0: Okay, very fortunate. I really appreciate you taking the time out. I just want the people out there to know, you know, how busy you really are uh, these days. But I think it's fair to say that you've had an interesting first month. January is over; it's put to bed. You've had one month in as a sitting assemblyman, and a lot has happened.
1: Yeah, in- interesting is one word for it. That's that's for sure. It's been. It's been a lot, and it's been a lot of hard work, but I'm, I'm hopeful that, that good things will, will come out of a very difficult and, and you know, possibly can, you can characterize it as a tragic situation.
0: Uh, no question about it. I think for you – know, let's put partisanship aside. Let's take however you feel about uh, certain you know, policies aside. There is a personal tragic element to this. Uh, about any fall from grace for people. And I should also mention, it's unfortunately, we we seem to see as a regular course, the either indictment, arrest, and today uh, the conviction of Albany uh, politicians. Uh, today, Malcolm Smith, a state senator, actually at this point, former state senator from Southeast Queens, and he was uh, convicted uh, in a jury trial in White Plains. And we seem to be seeing now I want to talk about your approach as a former federal prosecutor at the Eastern District of New York. Now your former boss is slated to become the new Attorney General, Loretta Lynch. But you've seen public corruption up close, and now in a sense you've kind of, you're you're seeing you're an elected official also seeing public corruption up close. And, and you know, and again, innocent until proven guilty. But uh, tell us a little bit. Tell the audience a little bit how. As a former prosecutor, that gives you a different perspective.
1: Look, I, I think that you have to be realistic about the problem. It is true that, by and large, there are – the vast majority of our public servants are doing good things for people and are, are honest and care about their people before their pocket, their pocket. But I have to say this. That cannot be – the sentence cannot end there. We have to look in the mirror and say we have a serious problem. I know that because for five years all I did was public corruption prosecutions, and each month I'd get a new file. And when I became the deputy chief uh, for a period of time of the public corruption unit, um, and and the just so the viewer, the, the listeners know, the district that I worked in was called the Eastern District of New York, and it covered Nassau, Suffolk, Queens, Brooklyn, and Staten Island. So that's eight million people, and I, you know, I was, I was astounded when I, you know, our cases are what you call need-to-know, meaning, w- you know, I say we were need-to-know when I used to work there, meaning you only know what you're working on, not what the person next to you is working on, because they're very sensitive. But I became the deputy chief and saw all the different people that were being investigated. It, blew your, it blew, blows your mind. And then uh, the Moreland Report came out, which, which told of things, uh, a whole new set of, of allegations against certain unnamed people in there. And then I get to Albany, and there's already been a major arrest, a conviction of a former high-ranking senator. Um, So this is serious. It is uh, is fair to say it's epidemic, and it's troubling. So the question is, are we going to make the right reforms and and make sure that the public has trust in us moving forward, or are we just going to wait for federal prosecutors to keep arresting people? And the federal prosecutors are going to do whatever they need to do um, to to do what they see as rooting out corruption. And what I say is, let's go make the systemic changes so we can make their jobs a lot slower than they, they currently are. And we have a real opportunity to do that now. So I never would have asked for this when I started a few weeks ago, but I think there's a real opportunity. There's a real silver lining here to restore faith in government because I think for once and for all, th- th- this has to be the one that says, let's let's get serious about that.
0: We're talking to Todd Kaminsky, Assemblyman from the 20th Assembly District, former federal prosecutor who has, in his first month, seen the arrest of the Speaker, uh, Sheldon Silver, on corruption charges. And he's also, in his past, prosecuted various Albany officials. But I want to... Hammer on one specific point that's been reported is that when the complaint and I, I should identify it's only a complaint at this point. There's no indictment of Sheldon Silver at this point. When the complaint became public, uh, a lot of the colleagues – a lot of your colleagues looked to you for an expert opinion on whether the charges were serious or not. Uh, is that is that an accurate depiction?
1: Yeah, you know, I haven't commented on that, but I certainly am not going to – I'm not going to co- – you know, I'm not going to quibble with what they've said. All I could tell you is this. There's a 35-page complaint that is extremely detailed. And the nature of the business is that defense attorneys will not let their clients tell the public or even a group of people beyond a very, very constricted circle what the defenses may be. So you don't hear what's on the other side. So I don't have the benefit of knowing what Sheldon Silver's um, answers are to some of this. So there's nothing on one side and a 35 page highly detailed complaint talking about cooperating lobbyists who are very close with the speaker, a cooperating oncologist who, who dealt a lot with the speaker, um, and I know that the law of the area that uh, in the area of, a, of the charge, it's called extortion under color of official right, meaning using your Uh, official power to be able to get a payment you're not supposed to the law is very favorable to the government so I I guess it's interesting that people mentioned me when they talk to the press about this but I, I think it's a fairly obvious statement to say when the Southern District of New York US Attorney levels a charge against a top Albany official puts 35 pages of details through it the area of the law is good for the government and I'm not allowed to know what the defense is. It's pretty easy to see why the conclusion one may come to is, "Wow, this is <laughs> this is a this is a very uh, tough case." And um, I, I just don't think it's it's an earth-shattering statement. It just it is what it is.
0: Right. Well, we're certainly not going to play out the specifics of the case here, nor we're going to debate anything regarding the specifics. I'm sure that it's going to play out in a very different forum. But from your perspective. You have now joined what's known as the reform caucus, or maybe you've uh, a little have been a catalyst for the reform caucus in the assembly. Uh, I think it's they're talking about uh, 25 or 35 members of this reform caucus. Tell us about this reform caucus and why the assembly is in need of reform, and what your caucus intends to do uh, with your with this uh, in the new in the new regime in Albany.
1: Sure. So we're, we're, the, there is no official name. We don't like the term reform caucus. That you know, um, we're, we're kind of like Prince. We're the caucus formerly known as the reform caucus. Um, but we, um, we we are just a group of individuals. 33 of whom have signed a letter saying that this is an important opportunity to reform the way the assembly is run, make things more transparent, give the average member more, greater participation, make sure that assembly members have the tools that they need in order to, to properly do their job. So it is, a, it is a new beginning. And like I said, no one would have asked for it to come about this way. But, and by the way, when the new speaker took the rostrum for the first time and addressed the body, reform was the second sentence that he mentioned. Um, be it outside ethics reform to make sure there are, 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 you know, that the public has trust in us and then internal reform to make sure that um, we're able to, you know, reflect the will of the people more as, as opposed to having a few people call all the shots. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. And it goes way, way beyond me. I mean, you have people who have been there for a long time who have uh, watched a lot of their good work go nowhere. And I feel their frustration. I can't even really speak to that so much because I've been there one month. Um, but, but I you know, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows is the famous Bob Dylan line. You don't need to be in the Assembly five years to know that. Um, it could use some reform, and so I think we're really excited about that. And we have a commitment from the Speaker to establish a reform task force that'll make recommendations to him. And I think it's um, I think it's really great that he's not just paying the lip service, but he's going to be making some critical moves toward that end fairly soon.
0: Okay, well, just and not to knock any nascent, I, I know reform is in the formative stages, but a lot of people will look at the process that number one that elected a new Speaker. Uh, that Carl Hasty of the Bronx, that elected Carl Hasty as Speaker, and that process being very opaque, behind closed doors, smoke-filled room, if you will. They'll also look at the lineup of chairmanships, and they'll say, well, this is exactly the same at pretty much as the old Assembly. What really has changed here?
1: So, I mean, here's the the first thing is this. Um, There is a lot of work that has to be done. Right now, we are in the process of, of um, putting the assembly budget together and negotiating with the governor over his budget. This is critical. That's where all of the work gets done on behalf of our schools, on behalf of our communities. Um, and, you know, maybe in, in theory, it, it would be nice to have a, 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 an open hearing where we could question the different assembly candidates, but there's work that has to be done. It turned out that at the end of the day, there were only two candidates left in the race at the end of a weekend. And then... At the end of the next day, there was only one candidate. So uh, it, it came together fairly quickly. Um, I don't believe that his um, calls for reform are, are just nothing more than that. I think he really means to fulfill them. I'm not so Pollyanna-ish and uh, green to think they're all going to come true, but I'm certainly confident that, that he means them. And um, listen, I think it's also unfair to say that on day one, he should have cleaned house and come in and knocked all the different you know, chairmen and chairwomen out, I think it's important that he, uh, you know, get his feet under him, find out what's really going on, and after, you know, possibly after, um, you know, we're able to get the work done that needs to be done. He may or may not want to reassess, but I certainly didn't expect there to be a a purge of sorts. I think he needs all the experience around him. He, He can have to do his job, but at no point did I think that uh, because I saw that the chairman or the same chairman or chairwomen or the same chairwomen, that his calls for reform went nowhere. I mean, you could have the same exact chairman and make a lot of the changes that, that we're hoping for in terms of legislation, getting a wider review, in terms of um, having members have a greater say. That could be true regardless of who the the chairman are. And by the way, one of the issues that we talk about is that sometimes the chairman and chairwomen are are, are, are too weak because the the speaker picks their staff so think about that you are the let's say the chairperson of education to pick one of many and the staff that you count on to help fulfill your agenda isn't controlled by you so it just because someone's a chair doesn't mean they're like a party boss or they're some you know mafia head or anything like that they're just trying to advance the agenda in their in their specific committee and I, you know i certainly don't take uh... those appointments to mean anything about reform and in fact uh... you know um i i'm sure that right now this reform task force and some other task forces are being put together Um and that's what i'm more excited about
0: and, and i imagine that you're going to be right in the middle of things uh... are talking to assemblyman todd kaminsky democrat of long island a suburban democrat and uh... last question for you todd i know the time is very short on your side uh, when the U.S. attorney essentially says, stay tuned, there could be more, uh, and you've had instances of sitting assemblymen wearing wires in, in Albany and uh, getting other members uh, in trouble with the law, what's the mood like amongst the rank and file out there about, and I'm not asking you as an attorney, or as but just as a, a sitting assemblyman, people sitting there and nobody knows what the person sitting next to them what kind of legal jeopardy they might be in how how do you how do you transact business how do you have that level of trust that you need with amongst your colleagues in that type of situation
1: yeah so michael there's not there's not like a sense of panic on everyone's face that the, the the walls are about to cave in i mean listen the first of all the people that i hang out with and talk to are the members of this group we've been talking about that are really excited for reform I mean people say things like this is the most fun or the most work I've done in years so they're really excited there's not oh my gosh let's all talk in a hushed tone in my car with the music turned up so no one could hear what I'm saying it's it's the opposite it's very um, optimistic it's very full of confidence it's very full of let's all put put our good ideas on the table and and try to find consensus around them the other thing I'll say about the whole wire stuff is listen if you don't have anything uh, illegal to say, you never have to worry about anyone wearing a wire. And at no point have has, have I seen so far, and maybe because I'm the former prosecutor, people treat me differently, but I don't think so. Uh, I, I don't see anyone having those worries at all. And I certainly don't, and I don't really it, – it's not like there's an Albany running scared um, that I see. In, I, I just see a lot of hope and optimism. And listen, like I said, if there is someone doing something wrong – the federal prosecutors and the FBI, they're going to find it out. That's what they do for a living and they're really good at it. Let's put some rules in place so that that doesn't have to happen again and we could really regain some of the confidence in, in the body. Listen, if there are going to be more arrests, there are going to be more arrests. There's nothing we could do, but we can show people we're serious. We can show people we're up to the task. I hope that I'm included in that and can be a part of that. I, I hope to be and I'll work as hard as I can toward that end so people in the five towns and people in Long Beach can at least say, I trust my government, and I think there's no, there's nothing more bottom line than that.
0: Okay, Todd Kaminsky, Assemblyman from the 20th District of New York, and represents the five towns, Long Beach, Oceanside, and other areas on Long Island, and we are looking forward to having you again in the very near future talk about ideas of reform and how things are changing. Good luck, you and your wife, expecting a child any, any moment. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class.
1: Thanks, Michael.
0: And we are here on Spin Class, sponsored by Beckerman, beckermanpr.com, and I'm very happy to welcome Ken Lovey, Albany Bureau Chief from the New York Daily News, continuing our theme on regime change in Albany. And, Ken, welcome back to Spin Class. It's good to be here. So, Ken, uh, as, as was mentioned, we just had a sitting assemblyman on, part of the reform caucus, but the question I posed to him is kind of the new boss it is, in a lot of ways is similar to the old boss. The committee lineup is the same, the same backroom deals, elected a new speaker, Carl Hasty, and number one, how did Carl Hasty rise to the top and really has anything changed in a meaningful way in the state capitol?
2: Well, I think in a meaningful way, yes. I mean, the fact that Sheldon Silver, after 21 years, is no longer Speaker is a major change. Um, You know, for good or bad, we're going to find out. But even just from something as functional as negotiating the upcoming state budget, this is a guy who's uh, gone at it with five different governors, you know, Sheldon Silver did, and was known as as an expert negotiator, someone who can take them on, and, really hold out for the kind of deals his conference wanted. Uh We don't know that about Carl Hasty. He hasn't been tested that way. He hasn't been in a room one-on-one with the governor negotiating these kinds of issues before. So that's going to be an interesting to, thing to see, whether or not uh, he can hit the ground running with something like that. As far as change, obviously he's only been speaker for a couple of days, so it's going to be hard to tell. But everything we've heard about him and seen so far is he's very close to the vest like Silver was. He does a lot of backroom deals like Silver was. He's not exactly uh, enamored with the media like Silver, although I think with uh, Hasty it's even worse. I I think he just doesn't really like the media. And I think uh, time will tell. Look, you know, he became... Speaker, in large part because of uh, the the uh, county Democratic chairs in New York City worked hard behind the scenes to help make it happen. So I mean you know take that's what it's worth
0: now isn't isn't that something that reformers should say, well, really, we, we thought we had an opportunity here. We thought we had an opportunity to change things, but we still got a speaker who owes his allegiance or owes his election. To the same party bosses, if you will. I mean, for what example, you, you had, I mean, uh, it was, is a party
2: it was, boss. yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, Hasty is a party boss. He's a Democratic County Committee Chair. He's giving it up uh, from the Bronx, but, but he was a party boss. Uh, and you did have people, including Kathy Nolan and Deborah Glick from Manhattan, who said, hey, we had a process. We agreed to do an open process within the assembly where everyone would have a chance to address the the entire Democratic conference before a vote was taken, and then a final vote would be done on February 10th. But Hasty really managed to work it hard behind the scenes. He got the support, and they cut it short. I mean, one by one, most of his opponents dropped out until Kathy Nolan was the only one from Queens, and and then she just didn't even have the vote. She couldn't even uh, deliver her own own, uh, county committee. And uh, and it happened, and then they sped up the vote a week early. So for a lot of reformers, they were upset by that. But I think they're willing to give Hasty the benefit of the doubt. He's saying the right thing that they want to hear. Now we'll have to see moving forward if he can deliver it.
0: So let's talk for a second about the governor and his relationship with all this. I mean, how does the governor... Go ahead and deal with a, a new speaker an unknown from his perspective, but yet a Democrat. And per, the perception was that he favored Joe Morelli, who was the, uh, majority leader, who was essentially the next in line. And there was a, this thought that Joe Morelli from Rochester was going to have a period of time whereby he was going to, whereby he was going to have a, you know, a, a speakership Sometime uh for as an interim basis. And yet that never materialized. So there was never a time that uh, that he was able to kind of consolidate any of that power. And Cuomo was kind of left aside, you know, on the side. Now, maybe he never exerted any influence. Maybe he did behind the scenes. It's kind of unclear. But Cuomo was kind of left out of this entire process.
2: Well, I don't think there was a real chance that Morelli was going to get it. He's very popular, and if you didn't have politics involved, he probably would have been the yeah. one. He's very well respected. He's popular in the chamber, and he knows what he's doing, um, you know, as majority leader. But uh, the reality is, it's a very downstate-heavy conference, particularly from New York City, and it was going to be very difficult for someone from upstate, even someone popular like Joe Morelli, to get it done making it worse is, um, you know, you've got to remember there are racial issues and there are, uh, you know, uh, geographic issues. So even if they were going to pick someone from upstate, it was probably even more doubtful that they would pick someone from upstate who was white and a male. It just was an 0 for 3 kind of thing. So the governor, um, he did, from everything I hear, there was no arm twisting, maybe some calls seeing what's going on. You know, maybe sending some signals of who they supported. But the reality is, so many assembly Democrats right now are not big fans of the governor. They're not happy with him. That it may have done, uh, it, had he gone hard after a for, former rally, it might have been detrimental for the cause anyway, because people have done the opposite. We saw that during the speaker, the uh, comptroller fight back in 2007, when uh, Elliot Spitzer was pushing for an outside candidate. And the legislature basically, you know, told them to pound salt and chose who they wanted anyway.
0: Yeah, interestingly enough, I think Spitzer was pushing for Bill Morrow, who is now the chief of staff to Governor Cuomo. And they ended up electing Tom DiNapoli, who was a sitting assemblyman at the time.
2: Exactly. So I don't know. And and how this affects Cuomo going forward? Well, he didn't exactly give Hasty a ringing endorsement uh, yesterday. He was upstate and they asked him about Hasty and he called him a nice fella. But that was about all he said about him. Um, you know, a lot of people think, at least going into the budget, that the Assembly is in its most weakened position in years because you have a novice speaker going in, you have a legisl- you know, a legislature overall that's been tarnished by scandal, and the governor really is going to hold a lot of the cards. And, uh, you know, don't underestimate the governor. He's a very, very formidable opponent. And, uh, you know, Hasty is going to have to deliver. There's a lot of issues that the Assembly Democrats are not happy about, that the governor has proposed, uh, particularly in the uh, field of uh, education and the area of education. So it's going to be interesting to see how it develops.
0: And we're talking to Ken Lovett here on SPIN Class. Ken is the Albany Bureau Chief for the New York Daily News and also contributor to an influential blog called the Daily Politics and Ken, you've been around Albany for for quite some time, not just at the Daily News. One thing you mentioned before is the white male uh speaker potential and the fact that that wasn't going to happen upstate white male. But in fact, and you know, given the bent of our audience, there hasn't been a Jewish there's only been a Jewish speaker since 1975 elected. I think there was an unelected speaker for about 2 days or so. Uh how is it that the age you know, a Jewish male was able to hold on to the speakership for 40 years, uh, despite the fact that Albany has changed and the state has changed uh, quite a bit. Uh, what is there something about that, or am I just kind of making it up, uh, trying to find a Jewish angle on anything?
2: Well, well, I think power, for one, and, and, you know, I mean, once you're speaker, you have, you wield a ton of power. You know, Sheldon Silver you know came in he was the chairman of the code committee before him was Saul Weppern and you know Weppern got sick and he had a stroke and uh you know Sheldon Silver uh, managed to become the acting speaker then he became the full-time speaker in 94 later 94 when uh Weprin died and the reality is once you're in i mean you have a lot of power a speaker not only negotiates budgets and, you know, has all those things, but he controls everything. He controls the purse spring, purse strings, you know, what kind of office you get as a lawmaker, whether you get a committee chairmanship that has a uh, stipend, you know, thousands of dollars in stipends attached to it, well, what kind of equipment you get for your office. He controls the uh, Democratic Assembly Campaign Committee, so that, you know, helps, on different campaigns so that, you know, whether you get money or not for your campaign from the, uh, uh, campaign committee, that's up to the speaker. So he holds a lot of power. What bills come to the floor, what bills are allowed to the floor. Um, you know, all those things are controlled by one person, the speaker. And, uh, he used it very you know, silver. Certainly used it very effectively, you know, some would argue dictatorially, but, uh, to keep to keep power. The other thing he did very well is he made sure that nobody got too powerful under him. There was never an heir apparent, which is why what we saw with Hasty, you know, no one was ready for it. So, you know, there was a skirmish, five people said they were interested, and then they had to duke it out behind the scenes. But the reality was there was no heir apparent because that's how Sheldon Silver wanted it, particularly since uh, he was almost ousted in 2000 in a coup.
0: That's right, and he punished the members who were, who, who had plotted against him, essentially. Um, you, Ken, I, just as we're running short of time, I want to just talk about the governor for a second. I want to talk about the governor vis-a-vis Bill de Blasio, if you don't mind just being a little city focused. Bill de Blasio comes out this week with a huge proposal for the Sunnyside Rail Yards and, affordable housing, the centerpiece, great idea, et cetera, and the first thing Cuomo is, well, it's the property's not available. Sorry. Now, either Cuomo was just waiting in ambush for him and just really wanted to, uh, knock him politically, but at the same time, there was no communication, Cuomo, uh, de Blasio never checked with the governor whether he was going to be on board with this. I mean, what is the dynamic going on between uh, the mayor of the largest city in the state and the governor of New York State?
2: They're really good friends, can't you tell? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, well, certainly, they're seen all the time together.
2: Tension, <laughs> there's always tension between a mayor and a governor. We were promised this was going to be different. They have a friendship that dates back, you know, years, and since the Clinton administration, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is the governor has never uh, fell short of taking a shot at the mayor when he's had the chance. The mayor, in turn, has often held his tongue because he knows so much of his agenda has to get through Albany. But even last year during the campaign, the mayor helped the governor on so many things. He helped them get the Working Families Party endorsement. That was oh, absolutely okay. We're going to have down. to leave
0: it at that. Ken Lovett, Albany bureau chief for the New York Daily News. Really appreciate you coming on and talking about regime change in Albany. And hopefully, we'll have you again very shortly as things continue to evolve. Sounds good. Be well. You too. This is Spin Class, and we're talking politics, sponsored by Beckerman, beckermanpr.com. And as I promised earlier in the show, we're going to go in-depth a little bit on really what's right now being known as a real brouhaha around this proposed – or I guess the scheduled – at this point, certainly scheduled – the scheduled joint session address to Congress on the part of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel – that was – that invitation was not uh, run by the White House and has become a bone of contention between the White House and Congress, between Israel and the U.S., between Ron Dermer, the Israeli ambassador to the U.S., and various members of the administration, and really has provoked a lot of people out there and a lot of writers and pundits and those that uh, – speculate about these types of things as a potential uh, significant rupture in the US Israel relationship. Uh so to talk about it we have a pair of communications experts. Uh Jeff Balaban who is for a old Time uh, well, I shouldn't say old-time, r- wrong word. He has long, spent a long time on Capitol Hill as a conservative Republican, worked for various Republican senators, and Dan Gerstein, who is communications director for uh, Joseph Lieberman, Senator Joseph Lieberman of Connecticut, as well as now the president of Gotham Ghostwriters. Gentlemen, thanks for coming here to discuss this very important issue.
3: Glad to be here. Thanks, Michael.
0: Okay, so let's just take uh, the burning question right now as far as was this a good idea just i and let me just fully ask the question was this a good idea for john boehner to invite prime minister netanyahu to a joint session of congress and not tell the administration or the the white house about it until i'd say you know a couple hours before that invitation dan let's let you take that one first
4: well, let me stipulate up front. I am not a defender or apologist of President Obama. Um I am not particularly a fan of his. Um, however, all that that said, um, I think this was a terrible idea, and I think it will go down uh as the Jewish Joe Wilson moment, um one of the most disrespectful and stupid uh sophomore things that the Republicans have done during the Obama's administration. Um and the fact that so many even conservative um Influencers have uh, criticized Boehner as a pretty good sign that they made a very bad mistake.
0: Okay. It's uh, certainly, I I certainly see a lot of that out there. No question about it. Jeff Balbon, you want to tackle that one?
3: Well, you know, I think that, I'm going to split the baby on this one. I think that uh, the idea of Boehner inviting Prime Minister Netanyahu to talk to Congress about the threat of Iran against the backdrop of what's been happening with regards to Iranian nukes and this administration actually isn't a bad idea at all. I think the execution left much to be desired in that sense that uh, it was fine to coordinate an invitation, but then wait until Netanyahu's people had a chance to run it by, not run the invitation by, but say, hey, we're going to be in Washington. President Obama, and we'd love to meet to talk with you, but that never happened, because Boehner's people let the information out, and the whole thing exploded.
0: Okay, so...
4: But Jeff, let's be clear. It, it didn't happen not by accident. It didn't happen because they purposely wanted to uh, stick it in Obama's face. Um, this was not sort of a, a, uh, an oops. It was, a, it was a conscious political strategy. Um,
0: right to, to essentially use Israel as a political football to score points and, well, and but also to to, I,
4: I to, to try and embarrass the president and, and and, and uh, sabotage the talks that um, the US has been leading in Iran um, and the timing was very purposeful um, both in terms of the Israeli elections and um, while uh, the the president was pleading for uh, Congress to not um, undermine uh, the negotiations that it He's doing, and, and Obama and Netanyahu, Netanyahu definitely wants to undermine those negotiations. Right. Yeah, well, no well, question about that, know, Dan. If you will respond to that, J- Jeff, before
0: you before you respond, I mean, let's just talk about the fact that there is a, that Netanyahu and Israel, and we can agree. I, I think it's right. They see Iran as an existential threat. They, the Israel, Iran having a nuclear weapon is an existential threat to Israel. They feel that the White House and the administration and Kerry doesn't take this seriously. And when you have a, your partner not taking this seriously, or not taking the threat seriously, or not dealing with the threat seriously, however you wanna, however you wanna slice that, then essentially you kind of got to, At one point, you got to kind of you know break the glass and pull the emergency brake. So well, Jeff, I mean, if you, I think ju- you it, wanted to jump in there. I think
3: it's beyond that. I mean, I think they see that. This administration has been utterly impervious to the needs of its allies around the world, and in particular in the Middle East. They've seen regimes fall into utter destruction. Entire regions of the world fall into war, and and now we have ISIS running wild. I mean, they see what's exactly going on in their region and around the world, and so there's no reason to believe that being friendly to Obama is going to help them. On the other but hand, but this isn't just a question of Obama. Yeah, this is a question that of the worked. United hey, hey, States. Now hold on, because I, I think the sound doesn't world. allow
0: for you to each hear each other. For us. So Jeff, finish, and then Dan, you jump in. Okay. Yeah.
3: On the other hand, we see an administration who seems exceedingly worried about what terrorists want and what our enemies want. So, at the end of the day, you know, again, the the, the way this was choreographed wasn't perfect, but the idea that Bibi should somehow or Israel should somehow Remain passive while this government, while the American government, and you can call it an ally all you want, it doesn't matter because it's not behaving like one. Well this government is selling it out, on as Michael points out, an existential threat is simply absurd.
4: Dan, well, I just I think um, I, I, I'm not going to defend the administration's foreign policy, but that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the the invitation um, that was concocted by both the Israeli government and um the house opposition um with a very clear purpose to to hurt the president and undermine their talks and undermine the American government's foreign policy um that is not just rare i think it's unprecedented um and it's incredibly hypocritical for the republicans to be talking about obama not being there for our allies and 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 um embarrassing our allies and what are they doing uh, what's israel doing They're doing the exact same thing um, and I think, you know, whether Netanyahu whether has a, a legitimate gripe or not, to do it in such a publicly and insulting way to um, the, the leader of his, his chief protector, um, it's not just um, hurtful, it's, it's self-destructive, and we're seeing that happen right now.
3: I actually can't believe what I'm hearing, Dan. I can't believe that you're suggesting that Barack Obama's feelings being hurt are as significant as what's truly seen By the Israeli leader as an existential threat. Assume for a minute that Bibi Netanyahu isn't doing this because it's politics, but actually believes that Iran is heading to being a deadly nuclear threat to its existence.
4: Right, and what I'm saying, Jeff, is he's been a horrible failure at convincing his chief ally that that's the case, and so therefore I think it's just it's um, it's self defeating to you know basically sort of say, well, I lost the argument, and therefore I'm going to go to my the President's enemies and, and work with them to undermine them.
3: Right. Except except that it's not true that this administration is its biggest ally. It may be true that the American I'm not talking Congress. about this
4: administration. I'm talking about the American government which this administration leads right now.
0: Well Okay that's, gentlemen that's I actually want to I want to exactly bifurcate the question a second because but just, just hold on. Because I think and I think we're getting we're actually really fleshing out the point here and I think you're both you're both right about this, but there's, there's kind of two points here. Number one is, and you can kind of ask the question this way. If it, if they had done it diplomatically or choreographed it properly, meaning let Obama know, let, let the White House know, let the State Department know, Netanyahu is going to be here. We'd like to invite him. Uh, we don't really care whether you say yes or no. We're going to invite him anyway, but if they had at least given them, you know, the heads up, told them about it, brought them on board, uh, that maybe, maybe that would have been OK, certainly would have been better. The other the other issue here is using the the, the speaker of the House or the House leadership using uh, and the Senate leadership using Israel and the Iran issue as important as the issue is, as right as I believe that they are on the issue versus the White House, using that as a as a way to attack the White House. On this, to attack the president on this, so there, there are kind of two issues here. You know, there's the there's our politics, and then there's, then there's the foreign policy, and there's the two things here seem to be conflated in a way that's not working out well for any of any of the sides.
3: Well, remember, you know, our Secretary of State John Kerry, and I, I don't want to say Barack Obama directly, but it may be him as well, was reported to have directly told members of Congress not to trust. Netanyahu not to trust the Israelis that they're lying about the Iranian threat. I mean, it's absurd. The, the, <laughs> of course, the Israelis should be talking directly to Congress. Um,
4: I'm not saying they shouldn't be talking to Congress. I'm saying they shouldn't have done it in such a clumsy um, and, and, and obviously transparently political way that um, alienated um, the American, uh, the, the executive branch, the entire executive branch. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, think this, my bet is this is going to backfire, not just on the Republicans, well, right there, but, right but on, but on and that he, this could potentially cost alienated. him the election.
3: What's alienating here? Well, so, I mean, Barack was... Obama or John Kerry?
4: Bibi has, has, um, embarrassed and humiliated the White House on many occasions, and they, you know, it's, it's harmed the relationship. but hasn't. I mean, like that right
3: time up. where he showed up to Washington and Obama wouldn't have dinner with him, wouldn't meet with him, B.B. humiliated the White House. The White House has been humiliating B.B.
4: Again, I'm not here to defend the White House. I'm just talking about trying to do analysis of the situation.
3: Okay, so the analysis should be that, that B.B. Is the, president, is, is the prime minister of a sovereign nation, which has been abused by our, by our president. And while he's, he's right to be careful and cautious, and as I say, this was not handled well on the Republican side, by the, on, on Boehner's side, it's not wrong of him to take advantage of an opportunity to come and talk to Congress. And by the way, the last time he came and talked to Congress, he gave a speech that was better received by Congress and by America than pretty much any speech Barack Obama has given since then.
0: Let's let's talk about Ron Dermer for a second and his role. Ron Dermer, a grew up in Miami Beach, son of the mayor of former mayor of Miami Beach, a supposed or I'm I, sorry, a guy who knows. American politics, Republican political operative, worked for Frank Lutz, then went to Israel, worked for Sharansky, knows his way around uh, American politics, certainly a student of politics. How is it that a guy like Ron Dermer miscalculated this? Because I think we can all agree here this was not handled well and it continues not to be handled well. In fact, I think Dermer spent the last couple of days on Capitol Hill trying to work with congressional Democrats so that they don't boycott the speech – and from what's been reported in Politico today, uh, he's not really making that much headway. So I think we can all agree it hasn't been handled well. Why, why do you think that he, that he messed this up so much? Uh, Dan, I'll t- you take that one first.
4: Um, my guess is that he's been talking to the Republicans, and the Republicans um, are, you know, um, are so driven by their contempt for Obama that it often leads them to do really irrational and self-defeating things like this. Um, and they they overreached, and that's been the story of American politics for the last 25 years. Is one one party gets in power, and they overinterpret their mandate, and they overreach. Obama did it, and now the Republicans are doing it. Um, and but it, it just so happens that the Republicans it's it's so personal. Their their um, contempt for Obama um, is is so much um, at the forefront of their political strategy. Um, that you know they thought oh we won the election he's he's weakened um, you know um, and we can kick him while he's down well they're realizing that there's limits to that
2: Jeff
3: yeah I see it not surprisingly a bit differently you asked about Dermer himself and and on the surface it's it's the right question because Dermer is a smart guy he's been around he knows our system as well as he knows the Israeli system and yet so why the kerfuffle and it seems and again, I don't know this for a fact. It's what I've been hearing, that, the, that what Dermer expected to happen was the invitation was offered by Boehner's people. The Israelis accept it, go to the White House and say, we, we'd like to come to Washington. We'd like to meet with you as well, knowing full well that the odds are greater than 90% that Obama's going to snub them. And at that point, Obama's got this in his pocket. I mean, Netanyahu's got it in his pocket because he did the right thing. He came to the White House. The White House snubbed him as they typically do. So he comes to Washington anyway, and it's much harder to point the finger of blame. But the fact is, that's not how it played out. Boehner's people couldn't, you know, resist the 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 temptation to let the information out prematurely, and everything now works backwards. So that, but that's you know, it's half speculation, half educated guess, half rumor, or that's a third each, I guess.
0: So I I think what you're – Jeff, and I think what you're saying is – and pardon me for putting words in your mouth – is that there's so much history here that we can't look at it with just this microcosm of this specific event. This has been going on, and this fracturing of the relationship has been going on for for quite some time, and the Israelis have essentially had enough, and they're right to have had enough by it, and I think that – what I'm struggling with and I think what a lot of people are struggling with this and certainly in the pro-Israel community are saying, you know, why are we in this place now that Israel has become a political football between the two parties and that legislators are going to have to choose essentially and I, I know the media is making it this choice that the legislators are going to have to choose between supporting Israel or supporting the president. It's not a, not a good way no matter what side of the aisle you're on. That's not a good thing for Israel.
3: Right, and I think that that's, um, that's just a misapprehension. The, the, the notion, the, the, the longstanding mantra that Israel is a bipartisan issue and that there's widespread agreement simply isn't true. There's one issue on which there's agreement, and that's foreign aid, and pretty much everything else gets pushed by the wayside because no one wants to confront the fact that there's tremendous difference between the parties. I mean, it's absurd to think that on this one issue, which is very contentious, All of a sudden, conservatives and liberals and Democrats and Republicans all agree. They don't agree. The difference between the parties is manifest. Dan knows it, and it may be unpleasant or uncomfortable to remind him, but I'm sure he knows it because he lived through it when Joe Liebman was basically tossed from the Democratic Party because he was too strongly favorable to Israel for the party to tolerate. Uh,
4: well, Jeff, just, to, just to clarify, he wasn't significant... ostracized oh, because on, he used to of the, the president think, on Iraq. Jeff, so I think Dan would things? have some
0: issue with, with that, uh, mm-hmm. and he seems to have some issue with you know, with, with the way you've characterized that. Dan? Yeah. I mean, what, what, what do you say to the allegation that that or, – or I guess the contention – sorry, not an allegation. To the contention that really what it's – this is kind of laying bare the idea that the democratic – party or Democrats as a whole are just not as pro-Israel as Republicans?
4: Um, Well, I I think there's definitely some um, differences of opinion about how to handle the the Iran situation. There's no question. Um, But um, I think it is a stretch to sort of say that um, whether you support the negotiations that are currently going on with Iran is tantamount to being anti-Israel is ludicrous. Um, Just because the current prime minister, who is a very hardliner, says that's, you know, that's now the litmus test. I think you'd find many Jews, even some moderate to conservative Jews, who would find that kind of position, or or, or um, politicization of this, as offensive. Um, and that, I, again, I think it that's it one of the reasons why Why widen now, who's
1: down this uh, to to
4: is because they, they have somehow kind of come to believe their own BS, uh, and um, and now view that, like you know, if if you don't uh, believe exactly as we do about the negotiations with Iran, you're anti-Israel. Um, if they follow that line, they're going to alienate um, a, a lot of American Jews, uh, and um, you know they will continue to hurt the American-Israeli relationship.
3: Except, Dan, that's not really what it's about, and and it's nice to try and clever to try and narrow it to the issue of Iran. Which, by the way, it's not that there are a lot of conservatives who agree with the president's point of view it's the fact is that there are far more democrats who agree with israel's point of view the real issue here though is that democrat the democratic party its base and its elected officials for decades now for at least twenty years now have been demonstrably more hostile to israel's interests in every single poll this is not a new phenomenon and it's not linked to this one issue it's just a fact that the democrats are no longer remotely as friendly towards israel as it's perceived, or as a claim, and so they fall back on this notion: How dare you challenge Israel's bipartisan support in Washington? The answer is, we're not challenging the bipartisan support. There is no bipartisan support. Is bipartisan support for easy issues like foreign aid? But when it comes to the tough existential issues, there is a dramatic difference between the parties.
4: Right, that's what I'm getting at, Jeff, though. You're, you're defining being pro Israel as taking a hard line position, and I think many people would just disagree with that characterization or that kind of test of being pro Israel.
3: Right, well, Dan, I understand, understand there's such a thing as J Street, and they claim that it's pro Israel to arm terrorists and give them a state. I get it, but here's the thing. Somehow, all those polls which look at attitudes and opinions about Israel also show the same gap. So there's a, a, a tremendous confluence. The same people who want the left policies. Also, don't like Israel. Don't think Israel should exist. Don't like the idea of a Jewish state. And that is an so exceedingly now, small minority of overlap. American Democrats. Either it's, it's, either it's a <laughs> remarkable coincidence, or there's a linkage between people who have those policies and have those attitudes.
0: Well, there's no question. Let me jump in here for a second. There's no question that there is an attitude on the left with regard to with regard to Israel. I, there is there is a wing of the Republican Party. Uh, although, you know, not quite as vocal, not quite as important, not quite as uh, activist that, that is of the, a similar mind. But let's talk for a second about, and, you know, time, you know, rugs out and I love to debate this for quite some time, but let's talk for a second about lasting political impact that we might have with regard to this. Will this have a lasting political impact on the U.S.-Israel relationship or on the way foreign policy gets – or on the Iran issue? Let's just take the microcosm of the Iran issue. Will Bibi's speech have an impact on on the U.S. political system, or will it just an, in three months be a footnote? Dan? Um,
4: I, I think uh, this little kerfuffle has strengthened Obama's hand, um, has uh, marginalized Republicans who want to pressure the administration to um, – Break off the talks, um, and I think there's an outside chance it could cost uh, BB the election.
0: Interesting, uh, Jeff.
3: Yeah, I, you know the people I speak to in Israel. Again, it's anecdotal, but nobody thinks this is going to be any kind of an issue in the election that's going to matter to the Israeli electorate. Uh, largely, the electorate has been in, is inured to the notion that making Obama happy is something that's good for Israel. Um, but I, in terms of the broader question that you asked, but, but, I think uh, Jeff, that it's this oh, issue. Sorry. Is not the the make or break watershed issue. It's just part of an entire transition period that we're going through now, as it's become more and more apparent that there's a significant difference in approach between the two parties to Israel's future.
0: But Jeff, let me just ask you for a second. What about a guy like Bob Menendez, for example, a pro foreign policy uh, I'm sorry, foreign affairs ranking member now on the uh, in in the Senate. Was pro sanctions, and now he's wavering in a sense because he doesn't want to defy the president. wasn't Isn't this a short term loss for Israel, for Netanyahu, for the agenda that Bibi wants to accomplish in the U.S. Congress? Right? He's he's now saying, well, you know, I, I don't know if we're going to go for sanctions right now. He's waffling on that because, and he's and a lot of people are saying that's because of this whole kerfuffle. I, I like the way you termed it, uh, you term it as Obama drama, uh, Jeff. Right. But we'll talk about B.B. Boehner Obama drama. Uh, yeah. I think that's a good title for it. But, <laughs> Jeff, isn't there a short-term loss here for Israel's interests?
3: I don't know how that's going to play out. Uh, I think that people are looking for all kinds of excuses, but at the end of the day, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure Menendez uh, went, you know, he, he, he folded last time also. Uh, this is not the first time. And uh, and and clarifying in general, I think this, there's this notion that if we if we paper over the differences and distinctions, we'll be better off. You know, don't let anybody know that what to do about Israel is actually a huge fight in Washington. But it is a huge fight in Washington, and clarity is only helping everybody on all sides. That's what I think, and I think that that I actually think it's it's a great moment where finally the issues are becoming more and more clear. The fact that there are a small handful of Democrats. Who are ardent for Israel, which exists completely and solely because they happen to have strong constituencies who push for it, and that they're lost against a sea of Democrats who are miserable for Israel. I think it's fine that people know it because otherwise it's been consistently for the last 20 years to Israel's disadvantage to fall in line with this bipartisan notion.
0: Dan, do uh, you see that's the way I, I, you know, I can't help but think that there are rank and file Democrats who over the years have become pro-Israel, who are pro-Israel even without significant constituencies for that in their district.
4: Yes, like, I think, I think Jeff is um, purposely,
2: <laughs>
4: to straight this case, uh, exaggerating the, uh, the weakening of democratic support for Israel. Um and, but I think one thing know, he's referencing Dan for a second was the, one the, one the disappearance best points here is, is look how okay. people vote. If if Jeff were if Jeff's thesis was accurate, right, then there would you would see a substantial um, uh, move away from Democratic candidates um, by American Jews, and that just hasn't happened.
3: I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said. See a substantial wave of Democratic candidates do what? move move away you know, from voters de- Democratic moved, candidates. Uh, Jewish what, what, voters
4: what? would be moving away from Democrats in 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 droves if the if there was this somehow this um, dramatic weakening of Democrat you know the Democratic. That's um, not. Established true.
0: Want I mean, gentlemen, gentlemen, for a second, before we conclusion. get into before we get into this issue specifically, and I don't know that we're going to have time to talk about the demographic changes and voting patterns. But Dan, what about what's been the, the lamented disappearance of the Scoop Jackson wing of the Democratic Party? Uh, you know, kind of, as Jeff alluded to earlier, the idea that your former boss, Joe Lieberman, couldn't, was defeated in a Democratic primary. Uh, and one of the reasons is because he was pro-the war in Iraq and pro-muscular foreign policy. And that wing of the Democratic Party has, has kind of weakened tremendously. Uh, perhaps people feel that Hillary Clinton represents a muscular foreign policy. I'm not sure. We'll have to, you know, we'll see. But Dan, isn't there some merit to that?
4: Yeah, but I think that's a, a different question. Um, and, you know, the, um, if you're talking about what's happened in Congress and, um, you know, there has been, um, you know, a very obvious um, polarization of the electorate. Um, uh, and in addition with gerrymandering and a bunch of other political uh, gamesmanship uh, tactics, Um have produced a much more extreme and ideologically pure Democratic caucus and a Republican caucus. Um, and, um, you know, then and America's worse off for it. I mean, there's a, there are almost no blue dog Democrats left in the House. Um, and there are almost no moderate Northeastern, um, Northwestern, or coastal Republicans. Uh, and you know that's had disastrous impact for domestic politics, and I think to some degree now it's 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 bleeding over into what used to be the province of bipartisanship uh, and foreign policy. And I do agree with Jeff that um, you know um, there is now a, a big conflict um, between the parties on foreign policy, um, and I think both sides are um, too extreme. Um, but what we're going to see with Rand Paul running for president is you're going to start seeing. Um, fissures on the, on the right. And there is a very, you know, vocal, isolationist wing of the Republican Party that, that is, um, more in line with Obama's foreign policy, um, and staying out of, um, you know, military conflicts in the Middle East. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how, the, the, the hawkish wing of the Republican Party fares in making those arguments. And, and if Jeb Bush runs, defending the Iraq War.
0: Right. So, Jeff, uh, last comment as we run out of time, but I think one thing we all agree on, all three of us, is that this uh, this, prob- this whole kerfuffle, B.B. Boehner, Obama drama could have been avoided with a little better uh, communications, perhaps. Uh, Jeff, uh, last comment on that?
3: Yeah, probably. I, I just would say that overall, I think that, that there's a, a fallacy undergirding Dan's point that if the Jews vote Democrat, it must be that their policies are good for Israel. That simply isn't how it works. This is not a Jewish issue. This is an American foreign policy issue. Uh, the people who care about the issue outnumber the Jews by a factor of twenty or thirty to one, and uh, and Jews have shown repeatedly, particularly Jewish Democrats, have shown repeatedly that Israel is number seven or eight on the list of priorities, following a whole host of domestic issues. Uh, that's just a fallacy, and it's a mistake to suggest otherwise. I think the proof will be in the pudding, um, but ultimately. This is going
0: to blow over. Okay. Well, we hope, we hope that it does blow over because I certainly don't relish the idea of the, the, having a huge amount of distance between the U.S. government and the Israeli government. No matter who is leading either side, I think we are all well served by a very strong cemented relationship. And we'll have to see how it all shakes out in the beginning of March, maybe coming for the APAC conference. We'll have to see who the administration uh has there. And uh, then addressing a joint session of Congress, uh, that is the APAC conference March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd in Washington, D.C. Gentlemen, Dan Gerstein, Gotham Ghostwriters, and Jeff Balaban, Republican political strategist. Thank you for joining us here on Spin Class. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Jeff, good, good talking to you. with you. <laughs> Okay, well, that's uh, been uh, quite a spirited debate on this issue. As you can see, there's certainly a lot of food for thought around this, and I think that one thing is for sure, the politics of it uh, have not worked out well for just about anybody, uh, which, which makes it all the more interesting. I don't know that there's any real winner in this whole, in this whole issue. Uh, one thing, as we close the show, and obviously we're keeping an eye on 2016, particularly on the Republican side, because right now the Democratic side is pretty boring, uh, I just wanna, one thing is really noteworthy. Uh, Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky and other candidates, they all attended the uh, mega donor Charles and David Koch's annual winter meeting of their donor network. And they had a, they had a forum there. Rand Paul shows up in a blue blazer, faded jeans, and cowboy boots. Now, I happen to think that that is, you know, you're trying to. He has been trying to attract a little bit of a cool uh, uh, aura around him that he he can appeal to younger voters, can appeal to non-traditional Republican voters. But you know, it's kind of like a know your audience moment here. I mean, one person said who was quoted as having said, you know, these are the guys. This crowd are people who put on a suit and tie every day to go to the office, and when you're there. Uh, when you're at there, you gotta address the part of the way you want to go. Every, all the other candidates were in suits and ties. Uh, when, in fact, they did a straw poll amongst those who were, uh, who were there, Rand Paul finished dead last. Uh, Marco Rubio, interestingly enough, came in first, followed by Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. So, we have a lot to learn, we have a lot to talk about, we have a lot to follow when it comes to the Republican primaries coming up in 2016 and we will certainly be doing that on a weekly basis thanks for joining us Hopefully, this show was entertaining certainly was for me from where I'm sitting is I'm happy to have gotten a word in edgewise and uh, we'll see you next week here on spin class on the not from single network